0: Hey everyone, I'm Haley Bloom-Peterson, and this is Our Stories, Our Health. We're here to share your stories, your experiences with our so-called healthcare system, to shed some light on the ways in which it fails us, the ways others profit off of us, to show you that you're not the only one who can't figure this whole thing out. We all have stories, and in telling those stories, we become the vehicle for wholesale change. A couple of weeks ago, I got to talk to Representative Ruth Richardson. She is a member of the Minnesota House of Representatives and the CEO of Wayside Recovery Center, which is really a number of centers that provide chemical dependency treatment and mental health services to women and their families. It's pretty awesome. When she's not doing the CEO thing, she's leading with her values and getting some much needed work done in the legislature. This summer, she chief authored a resolution declaring racism a public health crisis. Here's our conversation. So what is Wayside Recovery Center?
1: We have a women's treatment center that is in uh, St. Louis Park and a a facility where uh, single uh, individuals who identify as women can come to our family treatment center where moms can come with their little ones. We also provide outpatient services. And we have supportive housing as well. It's permanent supportive housing that women can live in as long as they would like. Um, It gives them the opportunity to get very secure in their recovery and also to get very secure
0: uh, economically as well. How is the treatment different when you have that gender-specific approach? Sure. Great question.
1: And, you know, Wayside, uh, through its history, has really uh, evolved. So we are celebrating 66 years this year. And when our organization started, it started as a shelter for unhoused women. And that first year we served uh, seven women. And fast forward to today, we serve uh, about 700 women a year and about 350 children a year uh, in terms of our substance use disorder treatment services. uh, And we also are a co-occurring facility Uh, focusing on women with uh, mental illness and mental uh, health needs as well. And one of the really innovative things about our gender-specific programming is the fact that Wayside was one of the first in Minnesota and one of the first in the, uh, the nation to create a family treatment program. And what that meant is that women could come with their children and participate in inpatient residential treatment. And that was really uh, an innovative concept because prior to that, the whole idea is that you come alone, you, you spend 30, 60, 90 days uh, within, a, within a treatment uh, center. So with this family treatment model that we have uh, been you know, a leader on in terms of innovating, it's done a couple of really important things the family separation that we see as a result of uh, substance use disorders is a crisis in our state and in our in our country. In Minnesota and within the U.S., the number one reason that we see kids being removed from homes and being placed in foster care is because of alcohol use disorders and substance use disorders. Hmm. So uh, with that, One of the really innovative things about our programming is that moms can come into our programming while they're pregnant, they can give birth within our facility, and they're able to have their children with them up to the age of 11. And so with our family treatment center, we have um, women who are pregnant, we have uh, infants from birth uh, all the way up to age 11, because we recognize that when mom is in recovery, the entire family is going to be walking that journey uh, with them uh, as well. And one of the, the key things that uh, is a learning that we've had is when we think about supporting families, we really need to uh, allow the individuals uh, that we serve to define who their family is. Um, and mm-hmm. so that includes when we wrap services around mom and uh, little ones, We also wrap those services around dads and partners as well. What is your role as CEO? When you're thinking about inpatient residential treatment, the reality of that is it's 24-7. So the first thing that um, uh, comes with being a CEO is that there is something happening uh, around the clock. So it is oftentimes, um, you know, being flexible and being able to uh, react in the moment in terms of like what uh, the uh, concerns are Mm -hmm. and what those concerns are they shift and shape uh, depending upon not only what's happening within the facilities but also thinking what's happening outside of the doors of the facilities as well and 2020 has been a year that has brought
0: many challenges along with it. (laughs) Yeah, that might be an understatement. Um, So what brought you to Wayside?
1: My pathway to becoming CEO of Wayside Recovery Center was really something that dates back to my time growing up in Frogtown in St. Paul. I grew up during the crack cocaine era and during that time period, my mom, who was really a visionary, and my dad as well, they saw the devastation that drugs, uh, crack cocaine in particular, were doing uh, to our community. And my mom wanted to ensure the kids who were uh, impacted uh, by drug use, that they were able to stay within our community and that they were able to stay connected to their roots, uh, and to community. So they opened up their home to a number of foster kids when I was growing up. And what I really saw in that time period during that really stressful era was that the response to substance use disorders at that time, especially as it related to crack cocaine, was not one of support. It was one of stigma, discrimination, criminalization, uh, family separation. And so as we fast forward to today with the opioid crisis, it's not lost on me that uh, we lost probably 30 to 35 years of really being able to think uh, in more supportive ways about supporting uh, families that are facing substance use disorders and mental health uh, issues uh, as well. And so that background is really what uh, brought me to wayside today.
0: Are there any long-term effects or benefits in either a recovering parent or their children that you've noticed due to this family treatment model? The research is just now really starting
1: to think about
0: that more like mm-hmm. long-term impact
1: in terms of thinking about prevention uh, as it relates to the little ones. Um, the uh, As we think about the Uh, sort of the direction that uh, preventative services are taking, like at the federal level, there's the Families uh, First uh, model that is in the process of being implemented here in Minnesota. And that's gonna take, I think, a much deeper um, look into thinking really upstream about the opportunity for prevention for Mm -hmm. those little ones who are accompanying their, uh, you know, their um, parent to a family treatment center. But one of the things that we do know in terms of outcomes as it relates to the family treatment model, with that ability to stay unified with kids, we see better outcomes Mm -hmm. for those moms in terms of their journey to recovery. Um, Moms that are with their kids in family treatment centers Are more likely to complete treatment and that is a critical first step on that recovery journey to be able to successfully complete and graduate.
0: I mean it makes a lot of sense right like whenever someone is dealing with any sort of medical issue if there's any extra stress it hinders recovery so it makes a lot of sense that if a mom can have her kids with her she knows they're okay she knows they're being taken care of she gets to take care of them.
1: Exactly. And, you know, we're able to work with uh, child protection if child protection is involved and it creates uh, an atmosphere and environment that uh, they can be assured that uh, kids are in a safe environment. They can be assured that mom's in a safe environment as well. And when you just think about the, the barriers that we all face, you know, we all face challenges um, in, in terms of just thinking about navigating life. Um, but with that added stressor of having a history of substance use disorders, it's like thinking about the stress that might happen if you are trying to get to work and your car breaks down, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you can't afford childcare, or if you, um, are having, uh, struggles, um, being able to find not only affordable care, but safe childcare so that you can go to work. And so, part of the the structure that we are really looking at um, continuing to enhance and build out is that supportive piece. Because when your car breaks down, if you don't have a lot of supportive individuals like in your life to help you, that can be a really isolating experience, right? It's like Mm -hmm. if my car breaks down, I've got family members that I can call and family members that I can depend on But for some of the women that we are working with, uh, particularly um, individuals who are coming to us with like significant uh, histories of trauma, um, maybe they are dealing with generational, the generational effects and impacts of addiction as well. So if you've got multi-layered sort of generations of families that have been impacted as well, that can really impede that support system. So this is really thinking outside the box in terms of like, how do we, Uh, ensure individuals that have experienced those significant levels of trauma, how are we addressing that with trauma-informed care, but also thinking through when those those life happens, things occur, where are the supports that are built in for them to uh, ensure that it doesn't um, uh, derail them from their focus Mm -hmm. on their recovery. That's
0: great. How has the approach to chemical dependency treatment changed as the public and lawmakers have become more aware of the opioid epidemic in the United States?
1: You know, one of the things that I will note about the focus on the opioid crisis is the fact that we have gotten to a point, it appears finally, um, within our approach that when we think about uh, opioid abuse disorder, the the initial sort of reaction was not one of criminalization. Hmm. It was one of, here are people who need support. And it was also very interesting to hear, not only in the, the news cycle, but also just in terms of thinking like inside the Capitol and also hearing from advocates, we heard a lot of stories about how individuals who um, ended up experiencing an opioid use disorder at the root of many of those were uh, concerns about the dispensing process and thinking about um, how they had been billed as sort of the this, uh, this safe alternative. And so people were having questions about providers and they were having uh, questions about um, opioid producers and what role they played in terms of this actual crisis. Mm-hmm. And those were conversations that definitely I didn't hear as a child like coming up um, as it related to um, concerns around, uh, you know, crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. There was no families first initiative to try to keep families together. There, there were not sort of these, like, in depth conversations that were related to prevention. You know, as I talked about earlier, the idea was really one of stigma, it was really one of discrimination, it was really one of criminalization, like Mm -hmm. your children are removed, you go to jail was sort of just that was, that was the reaction that was sort of what um, the the expectation was and so as we move forward to today and see sort of how communities are coming around the um, the opioid uh, crisis I always tell people you know we are we're probably 30 35 years behind in terms of where we could be with supportive practices 30 35 years behind in terms of the research um, And 30 to 35 years behind in terms of really being able to build an evidence basis for Mm -hmm. support because our initial uh, reaction to communities that were predominantly black and brown was a criminalization uh, response. And so here today, as we are in uh, the midst of this uh, opioid crisis, it's great that we moved there. But we also can't forget that history within that. And there's also a color to that history as well yep. as we think about uh, just the,
0: you know, talking about the impacts of um, institutional uh, racism as well. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. And I like I like that you have this sort of personal historical connection to it, not even just by way of the work that you do, but by growing up in Um, A household that was really attuned to it. You mentioned 2020 being a year of challenges, and we all understand that in our own ways. How has COVID-19 impacted Wayside?
1: You know, I will say that in 2020, the COVID pandemic and the murder of George Floyd have had a tremendous impact on our facility. Uh, From a COVID uh, perspective, what we uh, were faced with was the reality that we have a number of women who rely on us for, for their housing, be it within our supportive housing um, program or within our residential treatment center where, where women and their children are living uh, with us. And so early on, um, you know, even even prior to um, decisions being made at the, the state level around things like stay at home orders, we um, we reacted really quickly, uh, knowing that there were a lot of um, uh, concerns and risks. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that we did was to um, ele- uh, reduce um, passes from our facility to mm-hmm. essential uh, needs. So thinking about court visits, uh, doctor's visits, and so we really... Um, uh, had our women on um, what amounted to sort of a, a stay-at-home order before the, the state um, even even took that step forward uh, we also right away uh, we made changes to our visitation policy we moved uh, visits from in person to uh, virtual mm-hmm. and we also uh, did a number of things that uh, we had never had never done before I mean when you think about being a uh, addiction treatment uh, provider. One thing that a lot of people may not think about is we've, we've never used alcohol-based hand sanitizer within our facilities. Makes um, sense. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's something that you, you typically wouldn't do well with mm-hmm. the, with the pandemic, you, you flex and you move. And so um, we uh, created uh, ways in order to be able to ensure that we're using um uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizer in uh, safe ways, um, and that it could be done in ways that would be monitored as well, because we we knew how critical it was to ensure that we were sanitizing and um, practicing uh, great hand hygiene. We also reacted uh, quickly enough that we were able to ensure that we had access to those things, uh, hand sanitizer. We were able to ensure that we had access uh, to PPE as well. And as the months sort of rolled on, uh, we've been incredibly uh, grateful to just the different ways that the community has stepped up in support of the the work that we are doing. We had uh, neighbors, when we moved to video visits, they donated iPads so that we could ensure that as many women as possible could uh, participate at the same time um, with those uh, virtual visits to stay connected to family members Mm -hmm. and uh, loved ones um, as well. And more than anything else, uh, what we've really sort of learned through this challenge of a pandemic is the fact that there's a lot that's outside of your control in terms of thinking about uh, uh pieces of the pandemic but the things that we could hold and we could control uh in terms of uh keeping the facilities sanitized and ensuring that we had access to the appropriate uh, PPE has been really a critical way forward and it's been really great to see not only our staff uh, but our clients pull together in really great ways to support one another because think about being in a family treatment center Um, with your little ones, not much uh, opportunity to um, venture out. Um, At one point, we had nine kids under the age of one within our family uh, treatment center. And so there was uh, a need for just pulling together as a team, being able to give people respite um, and an opportunity to kind of get refreshed and uh, to be able to come back to their infants and babies and other little ones um, after being able to have a little break. And then also thinking about trying to have school in a treatment center when all of the, you know, we move to distance
0: learning as Mm -hmm. well. So we've learned a lot in the last few months. Yeah. You've got PPE, medical treatment, housing, schooling, just all of the (laughs) hot button issues. Given that we are you know, what's five months in, six months into the pandemic, um, in the United States and people are home. People are not able to maybe access some supports that they could have before when it comes to chemical dependency and mental health. Are you, are there things that you're particularly worried about right now?
1: Yeah. You know, the challenge prior, uh, The challenges prior to COVID were significant challenges. Access to addiction services, access to mental health services was already a challenge uh, coming into 2020. Mm -hmm. And with the COVID pandemic, what we really saw happen is that it began to shine a bright light on those access issues and it also began to shine a bright light on just the deep deeply rooted disparities within mm-hmm. our community when it comes to uh black indigenous uh latinx um you know people of color and just thinking about those those populations so with that what we began to see during the early stages of the covid uh, crisis was just increased needs, increased needs for support, um, Mm -hmm. uh, increased anxiety, uh, increased uh, mental health needs. And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And with that, it really set in motion um, just trauma on trauma within our communities because The challenges that we face just in in terms of ensuring access to care, it's not new. Uh, The challenges that we face in terms of uh, discrimination, racism, like those things are not new. I think what 2020 has done is it's shined a bright light on those inequities. It's shined a bright light on the impacts of institutional uh, racism. And um, being in the midst of this pandemic and in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's murder, what we are seeing is more needs uh, than ever. And thinking of that really broadly across the lifespan, that includes for our little ones who have experienced um, significant trauma. ACE scores, adverse childhood experience scores are higher uh, issues of trauma it's unrelenting uh, in many communities right now. And we're seeing that play out in terms of the wait lists and the need that is out in our communities.
0: Mm-hmm. I like the phrase trauma on trauma. I think it, it really identifies the sort of feeling of being kicked while you're already down that I think so many people in our community are feeling right now. Um, and in different ways, of course, for different communities, but there is this sort of sense, and this is, you know, 2020 as a whole, like what's next, what's going to be thrown at us like, to make these things even harder to deal with? Yeah. 2020 has been a
1: exercise and it can be worse. Um, and so you're, I mean, mm-hmm. everyone's on, everyone's on, I, I think uh high alert. And I mean, and just in terms of things like I started seeing stories about things like uh, murder hornets. I started seeing stories (laughs) about like birds descending on Walmart. And I'm like, I don't know what else 2020 has uh, in store uh, uh, for us. But um, what, but what I know in terms of uh, being in this and this aftermath is there is just a need for so much uh, more services. And so Um, As an organization, one of the things that we are grateful for is uh, with uh, recent investments, we now are looking at expanding our access to mental health services, um, expanding access to uh, psychiatric care, and really more integrated care models as well. Um, And I will say that with where we are right now within the need, it's not enough. But um, we are we are really hopeful that in this moment, there is going to be a true investment in the area of uh, addiction and mental health as well to really meet the needs that are out there in our community.
0: That is incredible and so needed. And even if it's only a small step, it's moving in the right direction. Switching gears a bit, let's talk about your other job. What made you decide to run for office?
1: Well, running for office was never really part of the plan. I like to refer to myself as the accidental politician. I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have sort of this grand scheme or grand plan of thinking about uh, how am I going to get to the state house. It really arose out of a question being asked uh, of me. And someone said, hey, have you ever thought about running for office? And I responded, no. <laughs> Why would I do that? And uh, a week later, a second person asked me, and I said, that's really weird. Someone asked me that last week. And no, I said, I've not something that I've ever thought about doing. And later that week, I had a third person ask me, and then a fourth person asked me, have you thought about running for office? And at that time, uh, what was really interesting as I began to question myself as to whether would I even be a good person uh, to mm-hmm. run for office? Um, do I have the right background? Do I have the right skill set to be really effective? And so I decided to tap into my network of friends and I started asking people, I said, you know, it's really weird. I've had four people ask me in the last two weeks to run for office. What do you think I should do? And everyone said, yes, of course you should run for office. And it was so funny to me because I'm like, why is this so obvious to you? And it's something that I've never thought about before. And I've heard the saying that it takes a woman being asked seven times.
0: Uh, I was just going to say
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> before she runs for office. Well, I will say it took four people asking me and uh, 20 conversations with like good friends
0: for me to decide <laughs> to run for office. That Averages out to about seven asks, I'd say. (laughs) Um, One thing that you did this summer during the, I think it was the second special session in the legislature, you were the chief author of a resolution to declare racism as a public health crisis. Across the country, more than 20 cities and counties, including Hennepin County, which declared this in June, and at least three states, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan, have declared racism a public health crisis. What went into passing this resolution in the Minnesota House?
1: House resolution one, I was, I was, you know, I've shared that it's been uh, it was it was a bittersweet moment being able to get House resolution one across uh, the finish line uh, in a bipartisan way to declare racism as a public uh, health crisis, because it was a resolution that was long overdue Mm -hmm. Um, with where the sort of roots of that resolution came from, it was a few days after the death of George Floyd that I began talking with uh, members of our People of Color and Indigenous Caucus, we call it the Posse Caucus, about the need to declare racism as a public health crisis. And the idea really is rooted in naming what has been at the center of the deep um, inequities and disparities within our country for well over 400 years. And until we can name it, and until we can all agree that it is harmful, and until that we can all uh, agree that it needs to be dismantled, we're just going to continue to perpetuate the, the inequities. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I thought was really important as we were uh, taking on this discussion of not only declaring racism as a public health crisis, because I thought, um, and the members of the POSSE caucus as well thought, we can't just declare it a public health crisis. We need to start talking about what we are going to be doing to actively dismantle uh, racism within our within our systems. Mm -hmm. And knowing that it has taken over 400 years of persistence, entrenched, um, institutionalized racism to get here, we know that a House resolution, a summer special session, even sessions over the next, you know, five years are not going to undo 400 years of that uh, systematic uh, oppression. And so with the the important piece that I think that really came out of that is the fact that we are uh, convening a House select committee and that models what we did with our COVID response. When we heard about COVID, everything stopped at the state level Mm -hmm. because we realized that COVID was a public health crisis. We realized that people were dying because of this public health crisis. And we also realized that there were things that we could do from a prevention standpoint as well. And the governor, the Senate, and the House all pulled together to find a pathway forward to address the public health crisis that is COVID. And we're still continuing to do that. And when I talk about the House Resolution 1 being so overdue, racism has been killing our communities for centuries. Mm -hmm. And so to know that and to know the length of time that it's taken to just to name that within the state and to even begin to talk about how do we as a house become an anti-racist racist like institution how do we begin to meaningfully engage with communities to ensure that there's trust within our systems and the systems that we know that are currently so deeply entrenched with racism that the outcomes are are horrendous for our communities people talk about our systems being broken and it's like no, Our systems are working exactly the way that they were designed to work. Mm -hmm. We're getting the outcomes that they were exactly designed uh, uh, to produce. So um, I will say that it was uh, refreshing that we were able to pass that resolution with some bipartisan uh, support. And we are looking forward now to the next step as that uh, House Select Committee is being convened. And are going to dive in into every area of the house um, as it relates to human resources, hiring, leadership appointments, uh, vendors, like how, how do we determine who we are contracting with, being able to think about the legislation that has passed and the legislation that we will pass, being able to look at that with a race equity lens and being able to look at that with an intersectional lens as well knowing that when race intersects with disability, those uh, disparities are going to look a certain way. When race intersects with gender, those disparities are going to look a certain way as well.
0: So my last question is, can be more general, can be specific, whatever kind of comes to mind, but what are your hopes for our healthcare system?
1: Oh, that is such, (laughs) that's such a big question and I will try to boil it down to um, to access an opportunity every individual should have access to affordable care every individual should have access to culturally appropriate care um, and every individual should have access uh, to quality care. Our health care outcomes shouldn't be determined by our zip code. It shouldn't be determined by the color of our skin. I think that the maternal mortality outcomes just speak to how deeply rooted these challenges are. When we think about black women being three to four times more likely to die during childbirth and also recognize that 60% of those deaths are preventable. The dream that I have for our healthcare system is that we're not going to see those disparities. We're not gonna see black children being twice as likely to die before their first, uh, before their first birthday. And so um, the system that I, I dream of works for everyone. That's great. I just want to thank you for the opportunity and um, appreciate being able to share a little bit about uh, Wayside and my journey to the Capitol.
0: Well, thank you, Representative Richardson. This has been a really awesome conversation. I love I've loved getting to know you a little bit more and about the work that you've done. Um, and we're just so grateful that you could join us. Thanks. Appreciate right, it, well, Julie. Yeah. You take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. We know it's hard to stay up to date on all that's happening around COVID-19, but we're here to make that a little bit easier. Our stories, our health is committed to bringing you timely science-based information and the stories of Minnesotans as they make their way through this challenging time. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at OurHealthMN. That's O-U-R-H-E-A-L-T-H-M-N. Or head to our website to share your own story, OurStoriesOurHealth.org. We get through this together. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and maintain social distance. For you, for me, for all of us.